listeners, welcome back. You're listening to the eighth episode of Kaya's English Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Jalu, and she is my friend. Jalu is working at UN Women in New York, and we met three and a half years ago on Peace Boat when we were both volunteering as interpreters on Peace Boat while traveling around the world. And Jalu uh, currently, as I said, works for UN Women in New York, and she also does work in some feminist activities. So thank you so much for joining us, Jalu. Thank you, Kaya.、Mm-hmm. All right, so Jalu, for the benefit of the audience, please tell us、um, about you and your background. Okay. Hello, audience. My name is Jalu, and、um, I am from originally from China. I have been studying in China and then in the UK、um, uh, for my、uh, master study, and then I came to New York about five years ago、um, to work as an intern for the United Nations, and then I have been staying here for the past five years. Um, within that, I'm also I have also studied、um, finance as my background, but currently I'm mostly working on project management in IT industry. Great, amazing! And tell us more about what you do、um, at UN Women. Yeah,、uh, definitely. So I'm currently working on developing a new grants management system for UN Trust Fund to end violence against women, and my work is to coordinate the、uh, development team、um, and also the business users、um, in Europe and in、uh, New York mostly.、Uh, besides that, I also lead several rounds of testing to make sure that our system is ready when we have it open. To the broader applicants around the world. So from last November, the system is finally live, and I'm very happy about that. And and we received many applications from the world、um, in English, Spanish, and French. And then we will go through a very、uh, comprehensive selection process to select some of the projects. And And then UN Trust Fund will fund these projects and also guide the projects in the next three years. And every six months within the system, I was working on the grantees will go into the system to um, uh, like um, share their progress of their project and also share their expenses so that we get all this tracked and to make sure that the project will be su- successful. Great. So you're doing really important work for UN Women. And what are the biggest challenges of being in that work environment?、Um, I'll say the biggest challenge、um, is when I first started the project、uh, that I was not familiar with, and also there's a lot of stakeholders I have been working with from different teams, and all that is. Brand new to me, and on top of that, I will need to make sure that the system is in good quality. So when we do the testing or go live, the system in a is in a very good shape, and、uh, we are we are ready to go to the next steps. So that was a bit challenging for me at the beginning, but I was able to. Um, lead on different、uh, rounds of testing to make sure that we have all the 
like system related issues fixed and also we improved the user experience and then we finally had the system go live yeah so your work is mainly about like programming for uh the, for websites right yes okay yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and why did you decide to join the un in the first place yeah, I think that goes back to um, when I first went to college. I um, I participated in a lot of um, like a student enterprise activities, and then I learned a lot about sustainable development goals and also how um, like people can make an impact to a lo local community, either to help them to do some fundraising or help them to start start a business. So I realized that those student organizations are really, um, they are trying themselves, but they are also making a great impact to, to a lot local community or to some people in need. And that I think come deep in my heart um, since I was like, 20 years old and I was always um, wanting to be part of that effort to make make the world a better place and then I go to study in the UK I did more work with different charities I used to fundraise for like breast cancer research so all of that kind of build up my uh, kind of skills were um, my knowledge in the non-for-profit field. And then um, I think because of that, it, uh, there was a turning point where I met um, uh, like a student also at my university and she used to intern for the UN. So I think, wow, that's amazing. And I would love to try that as well. So I was able to apply for the UN and uh, I was offered a, an opportunity. And that kind of, that was a kind of dream come true because I, yeah, it's, it's my, my parents didn't really believe me when I, when I said I'm gonna going to go to U New York to start my internship with the UN. But um, yeah, it was definitely a great experience. My colleagues are super nice. And, and also within this um, area of work, I really see an impact to the civil society organizations we work with. And uh, my current colleagues are great as well. And I have also learned a lot through this process. That's amazing. And for the benefit of people who might be interested in applying for the UN, like, like you did um, five years ago, what advice do you have for them? How, how, how can people get into the UN, get their foot, like, get their foot in the door? Hmm. Um, I think from my own experience, you're, um, if you have been working with different like local charities or non-for-profit, non-for-governments, for example, Peace Boat or um, other like local or regional or international organizations. So there's a lot of uh, organizations even when you are a student and then you can participate as a volunteer or even like you lead a project, et cetera. And all these things will be a highlight when you're applying for an internship with the UN. And now I think it become a bit more uh, competitive to get an internship uh, or a job opportunity. But I would say just keep, keep applying and keep trying and also keep enriching your personal experience so that you get, a, um, yeah, you will, be, you will get some highlights through this process. And did you use the UN Inspira website when you were applying or? 
Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I used that about uh, five or six years ago, and okay. and it is use a website that everyone use. Um, but that is mainly for the uh, the the jobs in the UN Secretary and some other agencies. It's not like everything. For example, uh, United Nations Development Program. It it has a different website and like you and women have their job opportunities and internship opportunities there as well. So if you go go search, there will be many websites for different UN organizations or agencies that you can um, find your um, your interest. Yeah. Okay. And, and I also heard that um, following their website is good, like you said. And also I've heard that it's good to follow the Twitter, the Twitter accounts of these organizations because they post the internship like uh, things, you know, there's an internship post open on their Twitter. So it's good yeah. to follow the website and the Twitter as well. Yeah. And do, do you know anyone who's come into the UN through YPP or some other recruitment process? Yeah, I do know um, some friends come, come from like the YPP, the Young Professional Program. Um, and then it is open. It's, it's not open to every country. It's open to the citizens for some countries who is unrepresented or underrepresented. So for each country, there's a limited threshold like of employees that UN can um, employ. And then uh, uh, like for my country, China, it was, I, I remember, underrepresented. So it was open to um, the young people for this country to apply. Um, and it is open every year, but for different fields. Um, I remember there were like social policy, management, like political affairs and recently they have like statistics and data science so they have many different fields but you need to look into the career website every year to check uh, regularly for what kind of openings they have but it is a very uh, comprehensive process and it goes through like screening and I remember you need to do some uh, like online testing as well. And also, yeah, if you pass, you will go to go through the interview process. Definitely it's, for me, it is like a lottery. It's not very easy. And um, I have friends, they are very uh, like intelligent. They were able to go through this program and get a position within the UN. That must have been very, very competitive. It's like um, only a handful of people out of millions, maybe not millions, but thousands who apply actually get in through the YPP. So, yeah. So you have very smart friends there. <laughs> not me. I'm not one of them. <laughs> oh, you are one of them. <laughs> okay. Tell us, and now tell us about your, like, you mentioned that you were like kind of um, in, in a lot of NGOs and these non, um, non-profit organizations when you were at uni. Tell us about those activities and your feminist activities. Hmm. Yeah, uh, sure. So uh, I'll uh, share one example for one of the organizations I've been working with. It is called Inactus. So it's not really an English word, but it stands for like entrepreneurship action and us. So this was one of the student organizations that was quite popular when I was in college. And what we do is to find the needs in our local area. For example, in, in Beijing, there's um, there's um, some um, some children, the, the, um, they are 
like they li live in rural, like rural Beijing area, and their moms were there to accompany them to go to a uh, school. Um, but those moms didn't have regular um, jobs, and they were like they don't they cannot make a, make a living. Maybe only the dad was a worker or um, having some part time job. So that was a kind of an opportunity for us to be there to help them to make a difference. And then uh, like one of the student, um, they uh, had this brilliant idea about recycle jeans because you know, making a, a, a jeans uh, takes a lot of water and um, resource of the world. And because of the fast fashion industry we have right now, everyone, like the, they buy so many clothes and jeans and then they throw them out in one year or two years. And there's a lot of waste on that side. So what we did is actually to recycle a lot of jeans from our university. And then we, sh we, like, we do all the cleaning to make sure these are uh, like hygiene quality and, uh, and well cleaned. And then we share, uh, like we gave this jeans to those moms. And then we also uh, have workshop with them to design some of the ideas. For example, we can make this jeans into a purse or into a book cover. And then uh, they, we do a few prototype and then we can share them and they can make this at their own time. And then we will help them with like um, sourcing these jeans to some local shops so they they can be sold in local shops and then um, they can be benefit from from this process so that was one of the example really deep in my mind and I feel while there's a lot of things we can do on the one side it is helping the planet it is um, uh, like reducing the, the environmental like the waste um, but in in other uh, side, it also helps those um, uh, moms and women who are in need for some part time jobs, so that they can um, like uh, maintain their their family uh, expense. So that was deep in my mind, um, and I I feel that was really important. Um, I think for the feminist movement, I I'll share two examples. The the first is. Um, Lingin. So it is. Um, you. It was a book from uh, Facebook COO Sheryl um, uh, Sandberg, and she uh, wrote this book. I remember like ten years ago or so. I was. Uh, I I read this book when I was in college, and I was very inspired by this book. I remember something in this book. She said is always sit in front of the table because she was in a very senior position in 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 her company and then most of the time she's she's only one near the table and all the others uh, other females they are um like sitting like on the outside where the they just they, they do not have a voice in this kind of critical meetings and then if this is always the case there will be less opportunities for women to advance their career in any company or organization so that was really inspiring. And um, when I came to New York, I know that LinkedIn is now actually becoming a non-for-profit. And then they have a lot of circles around the world. They have circles in um, 
in New York, in California, in Beijing as well. Um, and then I joined their, their circle in New York and then helped them organize some uh, like events. I volunteered for some events about women's career or uh, women's like how to, um, like advance their career or how to negotiate their, their salary. So this kind of um, career related workshop. So that was quite um, empowering. And another example I'll share is I used to uh, volunteer for um, a women's march here in New York. So they used to have this uh, like huge like marching activities in, in New York. And um, I remember it was like 2017, uh, I was volunteering to direct because there are so many people I was helping the like to directing people. So there's not like huge track traffic in a particular area and I remember there was one slogan it is uh, like my body my choice and and there's not only women there's also men and men will follow with like her body her choice and it was really um, touching uh, for me and I feel that um, it is really important for uh, for women to be aware of of that like if you want to get pregnant or not, you have the choice and um, authority to decide this for yourself. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of my outside work uh, like activities. Wow, that's, that's really fascinating and brilliant. Thank you. And um, since you were involved in these activities in like in Beijing, in in Bristol, yes, in the UK, yes. and and in New York, in three different countries, did you notice any differences in the way that feminism or charitable organizations operate in China, the UK, and the US? The difference, um, I would say. In the UK and in the United States, definitely there are the organizations are in a better like operation stage where they are well, they are better funded than the organizations in, in China. Um, I think one reason might be they have been there for more time than the organizations in China. So I, I remember there's organizations uh, established like 50 years ago in, in the UK that I have been, I have been working with. Um, but for, for China, it is still at a booming stage. So there's, um, I would say there's a lot of policies that needs to be, um, they might not be even a policy for, for some areas. And then um, like this become important when it comes to funding because a lot of, like from my experience, a lot of organizations tends to fund the organizations that has been uh, long lasted mm-hmm. and have very well equipped policies and framework. So for example, if both of organizations um, in China and in the UK are applying for funding, it is uh, also like maybe because of the bank language barriers, it is likely that uh, organization um, except uh, like in the UK who have longer uh, establishment and also who have like a more uh, complete policy get get the funding opportunity. So yeah, that is something I, I think what we can like, I mean, we like the, the UN can help with some small organizations to like make their policy 
more clear or even mm -hmm. helps them develop new policies so that in future opportunities, they can be considered as well, not just because they are small and they are not complete. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you mentioned China being in this kind of booming stage of like very mm -hmm. rapid development. Like I remember being in China several times and being astounded by the way it's so developed. I mean, by the way, it's developing so quickly, like mm -hmm. in many fields, like especially in technology. But China seems to be developing in its own like Galapagos island. It's almost like an isolated development. And mm -hmm. we are still not sure how China will develop in the future and how that might impact the world at large. It just seems to be kind of going its own way, which is very interesting. And looking at China today, how would you say that, like you mentioned the SDGs and how you were interested in them um, from a very, from, from your college days, like how are the SDGs like kind of interpreted or implemented in China? because I'm currently living in Uzbekistan and here there's not much awareness of the SDGs. Like mm -hmm. um, I'm sure governmental people, like people working at a governmental level know, but you know, if you just ask someone on the street, do you know the SDGs? They would probably say no. So what's the awareness level or how are the SDGs implemented in China? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say that, as you said, most of people on the street, they might not know the SDGs as well. Um, maybe college students will know that. And then um, you remember I mentioned my uh, student organization, actually we worked towards the SDGs. Like we go to local and na national competitions and then we share to the judges that what kind of SDGs we have achieved over that uh, over a project a period of time so um i'll say if you go to younger people they uh, they will know more about sdgs and on the other side um i believe that um the un organization in china has a very good um like rep representation and people uh, like to work with the un in china and then there have been a lot of um like different projects for like um, education for um, like girls empowerment, this kind of project in China that is uh, that was led by the UN. And then um, also I think the, the Chinese people really like working working with UN um, and to to help with their like local development or even like national development. Um, besides the UN, there's also a lot of NGOs in, in China. And I remember there was one NGO uh, which have, uh, like you, if you do one donation, it will plant a tree somewhere in China. So actually China has been planting a lot of trees over the past 10 or 20 years. And it was actually not only helping the environment in China, but also it is like for the benefit of the world that if one country can do this, if other other countries can do this as well, that we'll have more trees in in, in the world, and then the, the yeah we will we'll have less like um, pollution, air pollution, etc. So on that end, I think it is it is quite good and empowering. Great, great, Amelia, and um, so tell us about like when you first went to the UK um, mm -hmm. as a student to live there. 
Um, did you experience any culture shock? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so I uh, at first went went to the uh, went to the UK when I was already a third year uh, university student, and I was living in an apartment with like um, three other freshmen. <laughs> so they just entered the university for the, for the first year, and then the culture shock. The well, the main one is definitely how the spent Friday night. So like for me, <laughs> maybe I was like um, eating some, some cooking some co good good meal and eat and then relax, have a, a like watch a movie or something like that. But they are having a lot of parties. Sometimes <laughs> not, not only like Friday evening, but also Wednesday evening. And then <laughs> I think, yeah, the, the, sometimes they, they already get drunk at home and then they go out to to the pubs and like, <laughs> pub crawls. Yes, I, I I participate. I think once or twice, but I I got like tired in the in the middle. <laughs> I got mm. tired mm -hmm. at, at twelve a.m. and one a.m. But like they they come back at three or four a.m. So oh my god, that was like a culture shock for me. But um, it was like they were very nice people and. Um, on, on the other side, a culture shock is like, I mean, like for me, from my from my culture, we eat, like we focus a lot on, on eating and what mm. to eat. Like, mm -hmm. um, although I was not good at cooking, but I was always trying to to cook something delicious, uh, like like because I cannot have like sandwich or uh, like pasta or pizza for for a whole week. Um, <laughs> I think that was quite different. I think um, like the way how people um, like recognize the importance of like the food they, they eat, it's quite different like, mm. from my culture and from um, like the British culture. Mm, that's very true. I mean, China is um, famous for like it's rich like cuisine. Like the yeah. Chinese culture has a very like diverse and rich cuisine, which is like I think it's like a world heritage. So, so that's some, definitely something to be proud of. And um, yeah, and when you um, obviously your English is very good. How did you learn English, and how did your English like get to that that very high level? Yeah, I well, I still think my my English is not it's not very good, and it can continue be improved. I would say, um, well, we like as a student, we start learn uh, learning English at ten years old when uh, when I was in China. So it is like uh, like the third grade in um, in like primary school, and everyone start learning, but we uh, mainly learn like writing, reading, and a bit of listening. For speaking, it's like zero. <laughs> so mm -hmm. most of them, um, because of the competitiveness of the Chinese exams, we focusing on passing the exams and getting a higher score so that we can go mm -hmm. to a best, better school. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, because of that, we don't really focusing on speaking and really communicating with people. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I go to uh, college, actually, because of the particular program, I um, I chose everything was um, t 
taught in English, and we mm. have a lot of uh, like teachers from other countries, so everyone speaks English. And mm -hmm. that at the beginning, that was quite difficult for me because I cannot really understand some of the um, like the, the words were sentence. And I remember I have a like college friend. I I, use, I always sit next to her because. Her, her English was quite good. And then I like in the middle of school and I was her, what, what was the teacher just saying? <laughs> yeah, so um, it, it was difficult at the beginning, but definitely um, like it improved a lot when you are in the environment, you listen to English every day and then you start speaking and then you do presentations in English um, and then you talk to your professors in English. Um, so that is very important, and definitely my English become much better when I uh, when I came to the UK because all my roommates are, um, are British, and then um, definitely that environment when you go to a supermarket, you need to speak English as mm -hmm. well. So mm -hmm. um, uh, that is one side. I think the environment um, is quite important. The other thing I have been trying is to. Um, also continue to work for like local charities, volunteering for different organizations. So that is also helping you to continue to improve your English. And um, I think that is quite important as well because there's no limit for you to improve anything. And then if you are um, brave enough to just go to that position or to reach out to people, I think most of people are really uh, generous and then they will definitely offer help to you to practice your your language or to offer you a volunteer opportunity um yeah so i'll say um just to continue to to improve your english wherever you can in, in the environment mm -hmm. you have yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, among the many the many very like amazing tips that you mentioned the thing that um kind of really um seemed very in interesting or new to me was, you know, joining these charitable organizations to, to help the community while also interacting with local people to learn the language in a natural way. And I think that's a really good, that's a fabulous way to immerse yourself in the culture and the language um, wherever you may be. And yeah. that's, you know, having a maybe like a social purpose in life, having this, um, that's very important. And, but you know, because we're living in COVID times, that might be a little bit difficult, but I'm sure, you know, um, thankfully COVID is starting to disappear and people are starting to walk, you know, things are, regulations are becoming less strict. So I hope that these, um, you know, um, organizations will be, you know, operating um, like as normal as usual. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, great and very nice. And, um, Hmm. And this might be a bit of like, a, I don't know if it may be a sensitive question, but um, right now, like politically, China and the US are not exactly friends. I mean, maybe they're... Yeah, this is not sensitive. This is like, well, no. <laughs> it's well known. Okay, it's a well known <laughs> problem. And China and, you know, um, uh, the US are kind of in a antagonistic relationship right now. Um, being from China um, and working in New York, do you feel that in your daily life or have you had any experiences? 
Mm. Yeah, um, like for me, luckily, I don't feel much like um, um, like hit crime or anything like that um, in my daily life. And also that might be because like most of the time uh, I've been working from home since since COVID. Mm. Um, but I still feel that New York is a pretty open and um, one city to anyone. It's not like you will be discriminated against your race or your nationality or something like that. And also actually there's more Chinese restaurant in, in New York and some of them are quite authentic or- Authentic, authentic, yeah. Yes, and then, um, so I think from the cultural perspective, I think it's more connected, actually, not only between China and the, the, the US, but from any two countries around the world, they have a better or closer connection with each other from a cultural perspective. This is because of the globalization and also because like nowadays people have more uh, chance to live in a different country than mm -hmm. a century mm -hmm. That's true, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think the people are really friendly. So if you say like these two countries, um, like there's a tension that is definitely on, I would say on the political side about power um, or like uh, what to say or what to, uh, who can control what around the world or something like that. But like from my understanding, um, from, from the Chinese culture that we have been um, adapted to since since I was really young, like since thousand year, years ago, the Confu Confucianism. Confucian Confucianism, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, we we have this, um, this um, what, what do you call it? Like, it's not mythology, but it's like ideology that um, <laughs> the word is a an unity so mm -hmm. it's like we we want the world to be united and to be a place for for peace definitely mm -hmm. no war and that is always in I would say most of the Chinese people's heart that yeah we just want to have a peace and then definitely economic development that is a key mm -hmm. Uh, China has been developing so much in the past 50 years because we have this in mind. It's not, we're not like trying to get any power from like from anyone's hand. It's more that uh, we want to be in peace so that we can, <laughs> we can have economic development mm -hmm. and also everyone, you know, there's 1 billion people in China and we want everyone to have a better life. And definitely the life um, has been improved a lot in China. And then I think it was quite an achievement for the Chinese government from that sense. And um, yeah, my, uh, my grandparents, like my parents, they are very grateful for um, the government's leadership because they have been having better lives like they can see that from the when they are 10 years old and now they're 50 years old and there's a lot of like good changes from that like period. different worlds right from the yeah. time your grandparents were children to today i mean yeah. the development that china mainland china has gone through in the past half century is amazing it's like you know maybe 50 years ago there was 
where 50 years ago maybe there was maybe you know maybe not not nothing but like you know but now it's like a very hugely developed society so it's really you know it's amazing the speed with which it's kind of it's like a bullet train going through this development and i and um i remember reading kind of like journalistic accounts of traveling through china written by japanese journalists um there's a japanese journalist called hoshino hiromi and she she wrote about her travels in china um maybe 30 years ago and when she was in the countryside she said you know maybe there were mud huts or you know like very slow trains or you know it was very hard to buy a ticket and now when i traveled to china i saw these huge skyscrapers and these very clean like very glittery very high tech buildings and everything is so efficient and everything is you know elect like in electronic form everything is in data everything is so clean and so um high tech that I was like blown away by the the this very right. developed china of today yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. so uh, i'll say um definitely for like the the big cities in china like beijing shanghai shanghai is like new york and you you have all this like good like technology and all that um the thing with um china and why it is still a developing country is that most of the most of the people just see the parts when it is very well developed the mm. near the coast mm. that is a place mm. for for when it is very developed but for like rural areas in china there are still people that they cannot get water every uh, every day oh, okay there's mm. still people that live without electric electricity mm-hmm. and there's still people are like one dollar a day so mm-hmm. it is still i would say because of the fast development for these areas some of the areas were left behind and that would be the i would say the next steps that is important for for like my country to improve the living for the people that is not um well like what was not benefited from the first kind of wave of the development. For example, my um, my grandparents, they were living in um, Inner Mongolia and then they were living in a, in a village. They were farmers and um, like uh, they have been like, uh, they used to, they used to need to get water from a uh, well, but now they have waters at home, but still they live in a very rural area and definitely the development, they don't have any like um, buildings or anything like that. They just live in a small like um, house. So, uh, um, and that was already uh, some good villages, but there are like definitely some mm-hmm. of them that that's not, not even that developed. So there's a lot of things that, that we can continue to do and um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's that's a very exciting future for China. And what about yourself? Like, where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years? Yeah, that's a good question. Really? <laughs> I have been exploring. I think in the past five years, like the first five years of my career, I have been uh, working on different areas and try to find something I really like to do. And now I think I find it, which is like project management in information systems um, because I really believe that um, information technology will have a huge impact in the future like especially to the people in need for example if 
uh, uh, women or a girl can um, learn how to use a laptop, they can do some work virtually as um, like they can be a writer or they can be a translator or something like that. So this will help them having some financial benefits and um, that will have an impact um, to their life. So I want to continue to work in this field because I believe it will make more difference. Um, yeah, I think um, for me, definitely continue to work for the UN or any organizations that will benefit people that will be um, like my, my, my girl. And um, I will continue to work on that as well. And personally, um, yeah, it has been um, like two, more than two years since I uh, last seen my family. So it would be nice for me to be close with my family as well. Mm -hmm. Very true, very true. And any, any last thoughts before we wrap up? Do you have any? Mm -hmm. mm, yeah, I think this is a great conversation. You have been asking great questions and then like my mind was going back to my college times. And I think that was really um, um, encouraging, like at least for me, like to see where have where I used to be and where uh, what I have been doing in the past like 10 years. Um, and I would definitely say that for anyone who listened to this broadcast, Kaya is a great person and, um, <laughs> and a great teacher actually as well. And um, I would say continue to do what you're doing. Just go out, go out of your comfort zone and to explore because without exploring, you will never find what you really love to do. Um, so there's a lot of things going around the world and there are so many different uncertainties, but what we can control is like ourselves, our decisions and as we continue to improve your English because that is a kind of a tool for you to bridge the world and continue to be brave and also continue to be a nice people, yeah. Oh wow, that's a uh, that's amazing. Like like you, Jalu, yes, hardworking and uh, honest and good. And yeah, uh, we um, I will try to follow your advice, and I'm sure the listeners will also like to. Okay, so can you give us some last words in Mandarin Chinese? Um, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything you want me to say, or you can say anything? You can, I don't know, sing a song, or you can say what you just said in English and Chinese, or anything you want. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll just say, um, Thank you so much. Uh. <laughs> I didn't understand a word of that except for Jalu and podcast, but it sounded very nice. <laughs> so thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Jalu. And thank you uh, to our listeners for listening. And um, you, uh, episode nine will be out soon. So see you soon in the next episode. In the meantime, please take care and have a wonderful day. And thank you once again, Jalu. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Okay.